Good morning. I have uh, so enjoyed um, being a part and just sitting through this series with uh, Matthew and Steve, uh, learning about our God's kindness uh, to his people and his plans to bring restoration and hope uh, despite their rebellion. And I'm excited to be a part of this series this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 44. They gave me the passage on idolatry. So I don't, I don't know what's up with that. Um, I think they know I struggle with some idols in my own life and uh, thankful that I've had to work through this passage. And now you get to work through it with me. And we're excited to, to hear from the Lord this morning. Before we read this passage in Isaiah chapter 44, um, I, I just want to say it, it reads a little bit to me like a, like a letter to a child who's run away from home. And they've made their way out into the woods behind their house, and they've just sort of set up a life for themselves out there. And they're living off the land, they're attempting to build a tree house, and it seems good for a while until it just doesn't, and uh, their resources run out, and they find that they're lonely, and they're sad, and everything that they had tried to make work for themselves is just not working out. And so the parent writes a letter to say, Hey, buddy, I know it's not what you thought it was going to be. I want you to come home. Come on home. You're welcome here. We've got everything you need right here. Come on home. That's how Isaiah 44 reads to me, is God speaking to his people who are out running from him with their various idols of various kinds, and he's bidding them to come home. There's uh, some unique language in this passage I, don't, I want you to hear. There's a, there's a lot of uh, very specific language that, that God uses in sort of ironic ways. He talks a lot about forming and making and fashioning and worshiping, and he uses these words in multiple ways. And so as we read this, I want you to pay attention uh, to the words as we consider our own idols. What are some of the things that we are using to run from the Lord and hear him call us home? Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things that they delight in do no profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. Let them be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. 
He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned into the fire and also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and also I make the rest of it. An abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and would be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, these are your words. These are your words for your people, and you want to speak through your word to your people this morning, and I just pray that you would, through your spirit, open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to believe the good news of the gospel this morning set against the backdrop of the bad news of our idols. I don't know what everyone in this room is coming in with on their minds and on their hearts, but you do. I don't know who's putting their trust in you and who's putting their trust in other lesser false gods. You do. You know, my heart, my temptations, my struggles... I pray that you would speak to each one, meet us right where we are, and point us to Jesus. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts together will be pleasing your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
David Foster Wallace may be a name some of you are familiar with. He's one of the most famous essayists in the last 50 years. He passed away quite a few years ago, but he gave this pretty popular commencement address at King and College back in 2005, and it became, it later was printed and, and distributed, and it was known by the short name of This is Water, and it's a really great commencement address. Um, I want to read you just one paragraph, one section from this address where Wallace, who was not a Christian, um, as far as I know, talked about the reality that we are all worshipers. It's pretty interesting, that we are all worshipers. Here's what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason, he says, for choosing any sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. Now, I'm going to read more of that quote as we go along, but listen to what he's saying. Every one of us are worshipers. This is true whether you are a Christian or whether you're not. We are all worshipers of something. We're all giving our lives and laying down our lives before something or someone. We're all worshipers. This passage is about idolatry, but really at the heart of it, it's about worship and about worshipers. And what we worship shapes who we are and who we become. And God's people were doing what Paul later says in Romans of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, might we be guilty of doing the same things? Or maybe the more honest question is, where are we guilty of doing the same things? Where are we guilty of worshiping the creation rather than the creator? And so I'm going to talk about idolatry under three headings. If you're into outlines, here's mine. We're going to talk about defining idols, then discovering idols, and we'll end with considering how to dethrone idols. First, let's begin where God begins. Before and as he defines what an idol is, He's really saying uh, what an idol is attempting to be. This passage begins, our section, of a reminder of who God is to his people, his character, his attributes. You heard in verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. In verse 7, who is like me, let him proclaim it. And then in 8, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Just in those few words, God is reminding his people of who they are, of who he is to them. Their king, their redeemer, the Lord of hosts, first and last, the rock. There is no other God. But as we know, there are plenty of posers out there. There are plenty of fakes and phonies who set themselves up in positions to be phony gods in our own lives. There are counterfeit gods who are formed and fashioned by human hands. And these are the idols. These are the idols that God talks about in this passage. What is an idol? Well, simply put, an idol is anything that we worship before the one true God. Most baseline definition, anything that we worship before the one true God. The first commandment God gave to Israel from Mount Sinai was, you shall have no other gods before me. An idol is any way in which we have other gods before him. And we do it all the time. John Calvin famously wrote in the Institute that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. 
such a great image, a devastating one in a lot of ways. Before I uh, went into ministry, before I went to seminary, one of the jobs that I had um, is I managed, helped manage a temporary staffing company in South Alabama. And we had something like 150 employees sort of spread throughout various factories in South Alabama, and we particularly worked with Hyundai plants. And so I spent a lot of my time going and touring these, you know, tier one stamp metal processing Hyundai supply uh, plants and checking in on our employees and learning about the processes and, and these sort of things. And I would see these giant machines, right? These amazing machines. This was 15 or more years ago that I was doing this. And just I'm, I'm imagining the technology now of, you know, the big arms and the machinery that's just moving one thing after another and stamping this metal and sending it down the line. I know that's not what John Calvin had in mind when he wrote this quote, but it's definitely what I have in mind, is that our hearts are like these kind of factories, just stamping out one thing after another and sending it down the line. And then what Calvin is saying is then we, we bow down and we worship those things that we create, forming them into whatever image we want and sending them down the line like a perpetual factory of idols. In the reflection quote in your bulletin, and we had it on the screen earlier, Tim Keller talks about in his wonderful book on this subject called Counterfeit Gods. He, he defines an idol as anything that becomes more important to us than God, anything that absorbs our hearts or imaginations more than God, anything we seek to give glory in a way that only can give, that only way God can give. Idolatry is any kind of giving of glory and honor and worship and affection to someone or something else that only belongs to God. And so think about how God's revealed himself in this passage. If God is the king, well, an idol is anything that we look to to deliver us in a way that only a king can, to provide for us, to give us direction, to give us hope. If God is the redeemer, an idol is anything that we look to to give our lives meaning and value in a way that only God can. If God is the first, then an idol is anything that we make ultimate, that we put before Him. If, if an idol, or if God is the last, then an idol is anything that we make our finality. If God is our rock, an idol is anything that we look to for protection for security, for salvation. Verse 17, God said, He makes it into an idol and falls down to it and worships it and He prays to it, Deliver me, for you are my God. God is telling His people Israel that you have made other gods before me. And soon, soon in the Isaiah storyline and the narrative here, they will be sent into exile for their rebellion. So the question for us, of course, is what are some of those idols that we have put before God? It would be wise of us to contemplate in our own way to consider and discover some of our own personal idols. First, as we think about discovering our idols, what, what do they look like? So we've talked about what they are. What do they look like? In the context of our passage, they look like wood and metal, right? Iron and gold something made with human hands. Um, the imagery is great, verses 12 and 13 and 14, the ironsmith taking a cutting tool and working it over the coals. He wears himself out by making this idol. 
In 13, it's the carpenter who stretches a line and draws up some plans. In 14, cutting down various trees, cedar and oak, and forming the wood into an idol to fall down and worship. What we see in the, the, these texts is that an idol is literally something that is made by human hands, formed and fashioned by taking the raw materials that, of God's creation and forming them into something to be worshipped. And God exposes the foolishness of this, and He's saying, you are making with your hands something after your own image and falling down before it and saying, deliver me. It's really sort of sad as, as we read through it as the way God exposes it. What He's telling Israel is that your idols can never come through in the ways that you expect them to. Your idols can't deliver you. They have no eyes. They have no ears. They don't see you. They don't hear you. They are no gods at all. They're made by your hands. They can never truly deliver. They can never satisfy. They can never give you real hope or salvation. It's a fool's errand to trust in foolish idols. It's, it's funny, I, I've been studying this passage simultaneously with what we're going through in RUF this semester uh, on Tuesday nights. The series I'm doing this semester with our staff is our, and our students is um, on Elijah and Elisha's life. And so I literally this week, five nights ago, I taught through the passage on Elijah confronting, the, confronting Israel and the 450 prophets of Baal on, on Mount Carmel. And this is now Israel, some years later, 100, 150 years later, struggling with the same things. And so I'm in two different passages, two different sections of the Old Testament, same struggle. I was talking to my, my friend and uh, partner in crime, Brian Howard, about this this week. Um, and Brian said, it's kind of like Israel never seems to get over it. Yeah, and we look at them, and we're like, yeah, you never get over it. What's your problem, Israel? And then we look in the mirror. And we say, what's your problem? Read. Why do you keep returning to the same things over and over again when they inevitably disappoint and fall apart and never come through the way that you expect them to? We look to idols to do the same thing that Israel is doing. We're looking to idols to give us security and meaning and hope and purpose in ways that only God can. Idols is not just an Old Testament problem. You actually come into the New Testament. I was looking through this this week. Idols are mentioned a ton in the New Testament. It comes up in Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Revelation multiple times. Even John, you think about the little letter of 1 John. It's such an encouraging epistle. You know the very last verse, the very last word? At the end of 1 John, he writes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So this is not just a them problem. This is an us problem too. This is a me problem. So how can we begin to discover ways in which we take the gifts that God has given and turn them into idols and bow down before them? Well, this is where I get into trouble. You know, I'm just a guest here. Um, I'm one of you. I'm not, I'm, I'm not Steve or Matthew. I can't say a whole lot up here right now. And I, I don't want, cause some of y'all are sitting there thinking, and you're like, all right, what's he going to name? Because so-and-so beside me really needs to hear this. So I'm going to... I'm going to be more subversive than that. I'm not going to name a whole lot. Instead, I want to give us some questions to consider. 
in ways in which we can uh, take these questions before the Lord and consider even this week, what are some of those things that I'm using in the place of God? We don't have the time to name all of the idols in this room. In fact, if we could materialize those things, we would fill up this room very quickly. But instead, let's have some questions to consider. And these are not my questions. I've collected these from various sources, and these aren't even all of them. But let me just give you a few to consider. How would you answer this question? What do I need to have right now to make me truly happy? What makes me feel the most worthy? What do I find myself bragging about the most? Or what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? What do I turn to when things are not going well for me? Where does my mind go when I try to rest? What preoccupies my thoughts more than anything else? What's one thing that can change my mood in a second? What do I find myself complaining about the most? And finally, what do I sacrifice the most to? It's a hard question. What do I find myself sacrificing the most to? If you're a parent of a young child or a grandparent of a young child or maybe a college student, perhaps you've seen the recent movie Disney's Encanto. I have quite a few times and I very much enjoy it. Big, big fan of this movie in our family. This is a movie, if you haven't seen it, explain what it's about. Uh, it's an animated film about a family in a Colombian village, the Madrigals, who are given a particular gift that sort of comes into the whole family where every single one of their family members has a particular extra superpower, if you will. They can all do one thing really, really well and it's for the benefit of the village um, that they're in and for the benefit of the family. So for example, one person can heal people with their cooking. Um, another one can affect the weather. A little boy can talk to animals. You know, it's Disney. It's animated. This isn't a real story. Uh, one of the storylines that I connected with most in this film, and I, I feel like I'm telling you a little bit more about myself than I want to here, uh, is, this, is the narrative of the sister named Louisa. Now, Louisa is the sister who, her gift is that she's strong, physically strong. Now, not, that's not exactly where I connect with her, but she's, she's very physically able to carry a lot, and throughout this film, that's what's put on her, is a lot of weight is put on her, but it certainly becomes a metaphor of the feeling that she has that she's just carrying the load for the family all the time. And so much is put on her shoulders. And one of the things that happens in this movie is the gifts begin to disappear at some point. I'm not going to spoil it for you. You can go watch it yourself. But the gifts begin to fade. And Louisa's story specifically, when the gift of her strength begins to fade, she begins to lose it. And she begins to really lose her own identity because her identity has been so tied to her strength, her gift. And when it starts to go away, she doesn't know who she is anymore. She sings about it, of course. It's a great song. It's called Surface Pressure. Here's one of the lines from the song. She sings, under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. I wonder if that connects with any of you. I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. 
I feel this. I think one of the best ways to discover our own core idols is to notice what happens when they begin to slip away. Or we feel that we didn't perform or come through or someone didn't notice or whatever the case is, when it begins to slip away, do you feel worthless? For me, I feel this uh, as a pastor, as a minister, as a preacher. Um, some of the things I struggle with most are like performance and approval, which are two terrible things to struggle with in my career. Like it's a bad thing. And so if I preach a bad sermon, if I have a bad counseling appointment, or if I haven't come through in ways that I expect, that people expect of me, I, I, I can feel pretty worthless if I can't be of service. And when it begins to slip away, it hurts. And I feel really anxious. Or I feel stressed. Or I, I, I feel, I don't know, like I'm, like I'm seeking more. This is what idols do. They just demand more. It's never enough. When we make good things into ultimate things, they can never, ever bear the weight. This is exactly what God is saying in verse 20. Look at verse 20. At the end of this whole section on idolatry, He says, He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say... Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is what idolaters do. Feed on the ashes. Carry around a deluded heart, not even being able to see it and holding out an idol. One commentator said, an, an idolater holds out the idol, but in reality, the idol is holding him. Holding, do we see what we're holding out and saying, please deliver me? Let me read you the end of that David Foster Wallace quote where he says, everyone worships something. He goes on to list a few things. I'm going to let him list the things for us today. He says, if you worship money or things, if they are where you tout real meaning into life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and allure, then you will feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid or a fraud or always on the verge of burnout. This is what happens when we make good things and ultimate things. When we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so we have to ask ourselves something that my counselor asks me pretty regularly. So how's that working out for you? It's a great question, right? How's that working out for you? Maybe you're sensing some of the things that God's showing you of idols in your life. What do we do with it? And of course, this is where we come to our third point. How do we dethrone these idols? What do we do with our discoveries? Well, at the end of the passage, those final few verses that we read, God offers two very specific invitations to Israel and to us today. Now, there are more commands, demands, imperatives, if you will, but they are invitations from God. Remember and return. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. 
for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Remember. As a loving Father, God encourages His people to remember who they are to Him and who He is to them. Remember. You are my child. You are my people. Remember how I have delivered you. How I've brought you out of bondage. How I brought you into the land. Remember how I've provided for you. How I have drawn near to you even when you're running from me. He says, remember who you are. Twice in this passage, I told you to watch the words. We form and fashion with our own hands these idols that we then bow down and worship. And what, is, what has God formed? Well, remember how I formed you. I made you from the womb. He also talks about how he made the trees that we then cut down and turn into idols. He says, I made the earth. <laughs> I formed all that is in it, and I formed you with my hands. Remember. This is so important. Part of why we run to idols to give us meaning or security or hope or comfort or whatever it may be is because we have forgotten who God is and who we are to Him. Remember how I love you, God is telling His people. And out of that remembrance, he calls them to the second thing, which is return. Verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. God is saying, lay down your idols and come home. So how do we lay down our idols? How do we dethrone our idols? We too must remember and return. And of course, what Israel could only see in part, we get to see in full color through the pages of the New Testament. They look back on their redemption in the past, and they look forward to their redemption in the future, and we look back to a full and final redemption brought to us through Jesus Christ. He who covers our idolatrous hearts, who covers our sin with His perfect record and His perfect sacrifice for us, He is the one who actually never bowed down to another God. He's the only one who worshiped the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, who never succumbed to temptation to trade in the Creator for creation. And he laid down his life for idolaters like us. Why? Remember how loved you are. God not only writes this letter to us who are out wrecking our lives far away from home, but instead He actually does more than that. He comes after us to bring us home, which He does through His Son. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. God has taken on all of our sins, all of our rebellion and our constant worship of other idols that we put before Him, and He has put those on Jesus. And through Jesus' sacrifice, He has blotted out our transgressions. They have vanished into thin air like mist, immediately dissipated before God. 
because of what Christ has done. The problem with our idols is that they can never come through in the way that we want them to or expect them to, but God promises that He will and can come through in ways that they never could. So if, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this as an invitation from God. Perhaps some of the things that you're building your identity on are slipping away. Some of the ways that you've looked to for security are just not paying off, and you're just wondering, is there something more? Is there something deeper? Is there something more real than what I'm giving myself to? And I'm telling you, there is. And Jesus offers it to you, even now in his own life, death, and resurrection. Put your faith in him. If you are a Christian, you may be wondering, is there something more? You feel like some of it is slipping away for you too. Is there something more? There is. God promises to meet our needs. Perhaps the security that we're looking for, the meaning and the hope and the comfort and the identity that we keep falling short of finding is because it is only found in our relationship with Him. He takes the pressure off of all of the striving. We can lay our deadly doing down, as the song puts it, and actually turn to Him to give us real rest and hope. He takes the pressure off. One of the, my favorite images from that movie is that at the very end, the Louisa story has a, has a one-second conclusion where at the end where, okay, this is where I spoil it. They do get their gifts back. And all of a sudden, her identity is not tied to her strength. And the very last, one of the last images of the movie is, is Louisa is sitting in a hammock drinking a drink. The pressure was off when she found her identity in something outside of herself. It's like the old Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers who said the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new one. We must let the new affection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, expel the power of the old affections. And then, and only then, will we find that the gifts actually become tools in which we serve God, not ways in which we serve the gifts themselves. God reorients all of the good things that we make ultimate things and allows them to be gifts that we can use to serve the village, to serve the church. We fill our lives with who Jesus is over against who the world tells us that we are. We fill our lives with his values over the world's values, his ambition over our ambition. And we can begin to serve him with our gifts. I close with this. It's a, one example that I, I have... Um, been so encouraged to hear about what this looks like in campus ministry. Um, Matthew Terrell, many of you know, is uh, he's the RUF campus minister in New York City. Matthew's one of my close friends, and you ministered to him when he was a student here 17, 18 years ago uh, when he came through RUF's ministry at that point, but now he's serving in New York City and is doing a great job there. Matthew shared this story about a student of his who was a dancer, is a dancer, and she became a Christian not too long ago. And Matthew said that every student that he's met in New York City who's a dancer always, always talks about the demand on their life, right, for dancing. The demand, the pressures of maintaining a certain image, a certain look, keeping your body in a certain shape, the physical appeal, and the pressure of that life. Well, she became a Christian, and she talked about 
how the power of Jesus began to address those very pressures that she lived with. And here's how she put it. She said, food became food again instead of my enemy. Men became men instead of my worth. Dance became dance instead of my master. And life was worth living for the first time. This is the expulsive power of a new affection on display. Jesus invites us this morning to consider the good things, the gifts that he's given us that we have turned into ultimate things and to bring them before him. Let him reorient our desires, to reorient our hearts, to repent of the ways in which we have worshipped other things besides him and remember and return to him and find life worth living, maybe for the first time. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the ways in which you really do meet the needs of your people. And I pray that we would look to you in faith to do that. I pray as hard as it is to wrestle through what are the idols in our life, we are so shaped by the idols of our culture. We are so shaped by the idols in our homes, in our families. It's so hard to identify these things, but by your grace, would you allow us to see the ways in which we Build our life and value and worth on anything other than you and help us to reorient and use us and use those gifts to serve you and to serve others with, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.